Good afternoon. It's time to begin our worship service this afternoon. We'll start with number 868. 868. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. I will sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Oh, with my mind. sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing, I will sing, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Next song is only on the overhead. Everybody will be happy over there. And after the song, we'll have our opening prayer and scripture reading. Chad, okay. <clears throat> There's a happy land of promise over in the great beyond where the saved of earth shall soon the glory share. Where the souls of men shall enter and live on forevermore. Everybody will be happy over Y'all don't know this song? <laughs> oh, it's an old one. <laughs> yeah, we're going to sing verse 3 regardless. <laughs> verse 3. There we'll meet the one who saved us and who kept us by his grace and who brought us to that land so bright and fair. We will praise his name forever as we look upon his face. Everybody will be happy over there. Everybody will be happy, will be happy over there. We will shout and sing his praise. Everybody will be happy over there. We'll do that again. <laughs> that very reading prayer by Chad. <clears throat> Scripture reading that Chris has chosen today uh, comes from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 44. And 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now thanking you for this beautiful day that you've given us, the opportunity today that we've had to come to worship you and sing praises to you and, and to study your word. Father, we do thank you for all the many blessings that you have given us as a church family and also as individuals that you have truly uh, protected and, and care for us. Father, we do have so many that are on the prayer list that we, we pray for, the ones that are sick, the ones that have lost loved ones that are dealing with COVID or cancer. There's just so many of them, Father, and we pray that you'll be with them and you'll strengthen them and put your loving arms around them. Father, we do thank you for Chris and the lessons that he has provided for us today, that we will take your word to heart, that we will learn from it, and that we will be better servants for you. Father, we do pray that what we do here is well-pleasing to you, and it's always according to your word. Father, we thank you, and we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Long invitation this afternoon is 771, 771, and before the lesson, number 823. Would you stand, please? 823. <clears throat> Some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air, coming after you and me, joy is ours to share. What rejoicing there will be when the saints shall rise, headed for the jubilee under in the skies. Oh, what singing, oh, what shouting on that happy morning when we all shall rise. Oh, what glory, hallelujah, when we meet our blessed Savior in the Everybody had enough to eat. Welcome back. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 this afternoon. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Uh, we are in the midst of a study on uh, the kings of Judah from Jesus' genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1. We want to look at each one of these guys' lives, read all the things there are to said uh, about that particular king. And then look at uh, his life as a, as a whole and see what one principle maybe God is trying to get to us 
uh, from this guy's life. Today we're talking about an amazing king. Uh, in fact, this, uh, this king that we're talking about this afternoon will be the most righteous king since David, including Solomon. Uh, this guy is an impressive um, soldier for God. His name is Hezekiah. He did not have a good dad. In fact, his dad was probably the most wicked king, certainly the most wicked king of Judah. Uh, in the southern nation of Judah, they are blessed with good, righteous kings. These guys are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they are David's descendants. And so God has, through this lineage, uh, protected them and has given them a throne in which to sit on because he's doing something with them. He's got a, a plan to bring the Messiah through these kings. We know, of course, that that Messiah was Jesus. And as uh, and Matthew 1 teaches us, this is his, his genealogy. And so these guys, uh, skeletons and all, righteousness and all, are, are in Jesus' genealogy. Ahaz was not a good man. In fact, like we say, he was probably the most wicked king in all of Scripture, including the northern kings. The northern nation of Israel had uh, 200, 250 years worth of bad kings. And each one seemed to be worse than the uh, worse than the last, until you get to a guy named Ahab, and Ahab is a wicked king as well. Um, but I, I don't think even Ahab aspires to the depths of depravity that Ahaz um, does. And so Hezekiah does not have a good role model in his dad, but Hezekiah is going to be an impressive king. His story starts in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine. It's also found. In uh, the book of 2 Kings, starting in chapter 20, uh, or thereabouts, uh, you're familiar with the fact, of course, that Chronicles and Kings covers uh, a lot of the same material with different agendas. Chronicles wants to answer the question, uh, are, are we ever going to be God's people again? Will he continue with this covenant blessing, or are we done? Kings answers the question, whose fault was the exile? And it points the finger right back at the people. The people had been idolatrous, they had been immoral, and so God had cast them to the side. Like we talked about this morning, they had reached the point where God was, was done with them. He was cutting them off for that relationship. They were, they were no longer His people. Chronicles answers the question, since we now know that they are no longer His people, can they ever come back? Will He continue that, that ostracized relationship with them, or, or is there a possibility... Is there hope for a reunification with God? And of course, there's, there's hope for reunification all the way up until the cross for the Jewish folks. And then, of course, they have to come to Christ. So today with Hezekiah, we start in Second Chronicles chapter 29. We're going to start in verse 1, read the first couple of verses just to introduce you to this, this good man of God. And you'll be impressed, I'm sure, as you read through his story. We're not going to have time to read through all of it today. But as you read through his story over the next several chapters... In Chronicles and Kings, you'll be impressed with what this man has done, um, especially given his uh, his father's attitude towards Yahweh. Second Chronicles chapter twenty nine, Hezekiah began to reign when he was twenty five years old, and he reigned twenty nine years in Jerusalem. He has one of the lengthier reigns uh, to date. His own father only reigned something like sixteen years um, because of his wickedness. Uh, was not allowed to reign uh, for very long. But here we get we're getting closer to the Davidic time when a king ruled for 40 years. Both David and Solomon ruled for 40 years. So now we're getting, we're getting closer to that time period. 
Uh, and so he says, his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. We haven't heard that in a very long time. Most of these kings uh, are compared to David, um, but they fall incredibly short. Hezekiah has done all that his father David had done. So right off the bat, you get the idea. Hezekiah is a good man. Revival is about to sweep through Israel, though. Listen to what he says. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, so right off the bat, uh, I think Kings uh, tells us uh, that it was maybe even the first day, uh, but at the very first year, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he started repairing them. Well, why has he got to repair them? Because his own dad broke them down. Ahaz uh, had shut down temple worship, at least temple worship to Yahweh. He was perfectly content to open up temple worship, but it was going to be to some of the false gods in the area. And so, uh, since Ahaz has died, the very first order of business for Hezekiah is to start religious reforms. And he's going to do that. Sweepingly, he's going to do that. And so, you find that, uh, look in verse 4. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east. And he said to them, Hear me, Levites, now. Consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. Who brought in the filth? His dad, Ahaz, had brought in the filth. And Hezekiah's mind, at 25, in the very first month of his reign, the first order of business for this guy is to reacclimate Israel back to Yahweh. He wants to put first things first. He's right on the money, right? He's doing everything right. Uh, And in fact, the first order of business is to consecrate not just the temple, not just God's house, but the people who are going to minister to to God's house. And so he starts consecrating the Levites and the priests. That takes a little while. He's going to restore temple worship uh, on toward the the, uh, end of this chapter. Uh, He's going to bring Passover back in chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles. Uh, Passover was something that they would have celebrated every year, but they have not celebrated it in a great many years because of Ahaz's uh, failure, his, his, uh, his wickedness, his evil. Um, they did not need the reminder. Ahaz did not want the reminder that God was Savior, that God was the Redeemer, uh, that he had done these mighty things to and in Israel. And so the Passover was just one more ceremony for him that reminded Israel who their true God was. And Ahaz did not like that. And so he has done away with Passover. Hezekiah wants to reinstitute, wants to reacclimate Israel's minds to Yahweh. And so he brings Passover back. He's not able to get the temple and the priests consecrated by the time that Passover ought to happen. It happens in, in say, their January. It's the first month of their new year. Passover happens in that that first month. He couldn't get it done by January. And so he has to wait until February 14th. Normally it happens on our, we would say January 14th. Um, but it, they couldn't get it done. The temple wasn't uh, cleared out yet. It took them weeks to clear out the temple from all the, the filth that Ahaz had brought in. And it takes even longer for, the, uh, for Hezekiah to get the priests and the Levites back in line. And so by the time he does that, Passover's already come and gone. But he wants to honor uh, God in this way. And so he does something that's incredibly unusual. He moves Passover. Uh, he wasn't, couldn't get everything in line in time to do it at the right date. Now, finally, he's got everything in line to do it. 
but it's the wrong date. And so he, he does this thing, uh, and God is pleased with it uh, because uh, Hezekiah's heart was in the right place. And, uh, I guess he allowed an exception in this, in this one instance here. Um, but he's pleased with, with, uh, with the Passover here. Uh, flip over to 31, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 31. He starts organizing the priests. He is just doing everything in his power to wipe out the idolatry and the, and the immorality that is running rampant in Judah. Everything Hezekiah can think of. He starts tearing apart the high places. You've heard that before, right? Kings previously in Judah have torn down the high places. But what happens? They get built right back up. You know why? Because the people don't want to worship Yahweh. During Hezekiah's day, something happens. The northern nation of Israel is destroyed. They're gone. The Assyrians come in and they wipe them out in 722 B.C. And something happens in the, north, in the southern nation of Judah as their northern cousins and their family are being carted off into Assyrian captivity. God does something in the southern nation of Judah's hearts. And they start turning toward him. And revival has swept now through the entire country. So it's not just the king who is righteous now, but he's now leading a righteous people. And so he starts tearing apart the high places. Remember Ahaz had made high places and throughout all of Judah and in every corner is what scripture says of Jerusalem itself. Hezekiah ferrets all those things out. He tears them down. He starts tearing uh, apart the high places from, uh, from throughout Judah, the whole country. He's even going to get on up into the northern nation of Israel. Uh, he invites them over to come to celebrate Passover with him. How long has it been since the northern nation of Israel, now decimated, but still uh, has a few stragglers that the Assyrians have left there? How long has it been since they've celebrated Passover? It's been a couple hundred years. Nobody in living memory can remember anyone who ever celebrated Passover in the northern nation of Israel. That's how long it's been. About 200 years, maybe a little bit longer. It's been a while. Now, Hezekiah, in preparation for Passover on this year, uh, the first year of his reign, he sends emissaries out to the northern nation of, of Israel throughout their cities. He says, hey, come back home. He's reunifying the country again, isn't he? What, what, what was broken 200 years ago under the reign of Rehoboam, God broke that. And he sent 10 tribes up north and two tribes down south. God did that. And now he's bringing them back together. He's reuniting what he broke. And he's doing it through uh, King Hezekiah. God can do anything through a righteous person, can't he? Anything. Whatever his wildest dream is, he can accomplish it through a righteous person. And he's doing that here. He's reunifying his country. And so Hezekiah sends emissaries all throughout the northern nation of Israel as well as the southern nation of Judah. He says, hey, on February 14th, we're going to celebrate Passover. It's been a while, I know. But come back to Jerusalem. Come back to the temple and worship with us. And they do. A lot of them do. Uh, it's, just, it's, an, it's an incredible time of revival for, for Israel. So not only does he take, out, take down all the high places, he reinstitutes Passover. He starts ferreting out all the idols. All the all the the ashram and the baals, all those of the fault the uh, false gods, the altars to the false gods, all those things he ferrets out and he destroys those things. But then you find this really interesting tidbit 
um, that he breaks apart the bronze serpent. Do you remember the bronze serpent? So back in Numbers, Moses, uh, the children of Israel have sinned in this incredible way. And God has sent poisonous snakes among them. And whoever is bitten by the snake dies. It's kind of an immediate thing. Thousands upon thousands of people die in Israel thanks to these snakes. Moses cries out to God for deliverance, for salvation. And God gives it. He says, build this bronze snake and hold it up on a pole. Whoever looks at the snake will be saved. Pretty simple thing, right? It's an obvious allusion to Christ being lifted up and whoever looks with the spiritual eyes to him will be saved. So Moses holds up this bronze serpent and whoever looked at it was saved and God delivered Israel that day through the serpent. It's hung out in Israel since that day. Like almost a thousand years has passed since that moment. They've hung on to this snake for a thousand years It's just been sitting somewhere. And during Hezekiah's day, we find out that during Ahaz's day, they had been worshiping this thing. And so, which makes complete and perfect sense because Ahaz was happy to worship whatever he thought would bring him power. But the people had followed it. Uh, They even had a name for this thing, a name that God didn't give it, but they named this snake. And so Hezekiah gets a hold of it and he bashes it to pieces like he does the, the rest of the altars. Now, something really happens, something really interesting happens, starting in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, 32, something I think we need to focus in on. After all these incredible revival, after this incredible revival has happened, what happens? You, you expect sunflowers and daisies, right? Like you expect good things to ha- be happening in Israel, but that's not what happens, is it? <coughs> Excuse me. Look in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. He says, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, he even draws our attention to, in case you missed, all of Hezekiah's devotion to Yahweh. The chronicler points it out for you. Hezekiah's done these incredible things. After all these things, though, Sennacherib, uh-oh, king of Assyria, double uh-oh, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. We've got a problem, right? Because the war machine that's known as Assyria has come to Judah's door. After all the things that Hezekiah has done, you would expect God to step in and save. But he hasn't. Sennacherib, the incredible king of Assyria, has come to Judah's doorstep. And when he's gonna, he comes to Jerusalem, he conquers 46 fortified cities in Judah. And he's at Jerusalem's doorstep. And he sends messengers. You find this in Isaiah as well as here in Chronicles and Kings. He sends these three messengers to taunt Israel, or to taunt Judah and King Hezekiah, and to get them to surrender. They don't, of course. Um, but what's so interesting is the, the, the amount of cities that he has already captured in Judah. 46 fortified cities. We know that thanks to... Uh, some archaeologists that have, uh, have been digging up around Assyria, they found uh, the, the stela. It's, uh, it's basically an obelisk that, uh, that Sennacherib had somebody etch in the stone the um, accounts of his, some of his battles. And he talks about this exact thing. Yeah, he talks about having Hezekiah caged up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. But he doesn't conquer Judah. Interesting, right? So uh, flip on down uh, to verse 2. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 2. 
And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to, to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs in the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? And so he does these reforms throughout the land that are spiritual, uh, revival sweeping through the, through the land. But then you've got a problem. You've got this king of Assyria. He's going to come in, and his intended goal is to crush everybody, to cart them off into captivity at the very least. And Hezekiah says, don't want that to happen. And so he starts making plans to, uh, to, to make it hard for him to do that. And so he stops up the, the, the river that runs through Jerusalem. And you can go see it today. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And so he rerouted the water that ran outside Jerusalem. He rerouted it so it runs inside the city. And you can get fresh water inside the city, but you can't, as an army, you couldn't um, block it up today because, or back then because he's got it uh, protected. It's underneath the city. It's in a secret tunnel. Only he, uh, only the, the people of Judah knew about right underneath Jerusalem. So you can go through it today. You, it's a small tunnel. You couldn't walk through it upright. You'd have to kind of crouch under. It's maybe three or four feet tall. But uh, you can go see it today. It's, apparently it's, it's very, I've seen movies about it. Uh, it's really interesting. Anyhow, he does that uh, and he starts fortifying the city. He gets uh, people to come in and help uh, with, uh, with the fight. He gets this messenger from Sennacherib uh, toward the middle of Second Chronicles 32. And the messenger wants to accept their uh, Judah's um, surrender, but they're not surrendering. Look down in verse 20, Second Chronicles 32, 20. He says, Then Hezekiah, the king, of, the king, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. You're familiar with him, right? He wrote the book, Isaiah. <coughs> Prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame to face his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So did you see what happened? Like he comes and he has this great show of force. He has a massive army standing outside of Jerusalem. Had he wanted to take Judah, had he wanted to take Jerusalem, I don't think it would have been much of a problem, but God was standing in his way. God fought for Jerusalem. And so uh, the account of this exact story in Kings tells us that God killed 185,000, 185,000 Assyrians that night. Uh, chronicler, the chronicler tells us that they were the commanders and the generals and the higher-ups, the officers and the commanders. In the army, so just imagine how massive this army must have been. Not only that, by the time Sennacherib and his army know that they've been defeated, that something incredible is going on, he goes back to Assyria, and what happens? He's in the temple of one of his gods, worshiping the place he ought to be safe among the people that he ought to be safe, and two of his own sons stab him to death, just like Isaiah said he would in Kings. And so, the great war machine of Assyria is derailed because of Isaiah's or because of Hezekiah's faithfulness. It looked dire, didn't it? It looked like Hezekiah was in a was in a spot, but in fact he was not. God was watching out for him the whole time. What's just so interesting is it happens again. In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verse 24, 
after this incredible display of faithfulness, lots of kings of Judah had fallen to this exact tactic of Satan. An enemy country had sent an army down, and instead of turning to Yahweh, that other, those other kings of Judah turned to, some of them turned to Syria. Some of, some of them, Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah's own dad, Ahaz, turned to Assyria for help. Some of them turned to Egypt. Very few of them turned to Yahweh. But Hezekiah does. And so you see in him once again this incredible faith that is not known. It's certainly not regularly known among his brethren. Um, But here he has this enormous faith. But look what happens again in verse 24. And it's almost like the chronicler is pointing out to us. He's drawing our attention to this fact. In those days, back when Hezekiah was so faithful, back when revival was sweeping through the land, back when Hezekiah was was leaning on God, leaning into God when he was trusting him with everything he had. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign. Uh, But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And so back when he is so faithful, back when his mind and his heart are sold out to Yahweh, another bad thing happens to him. He gets really sick, uh, and it looks like he's going to die. He prays to the Lord. Uh, the, the writer of Kings records this, this tidbit for us. He prays to the Lord. He gets sick, first of all, and then God sends uh, Isaiah the prophet over to the king's palace. He says, get your house in order because you're going to die. Hezekiah is broken, but what are you going to do? It's a word from the Lord. So he believes him, and he knows it's going to happen, but then he prays. And before Isaiah can even exit the king's gardens, God sends Isaiah back to the king's bed. He says, hey, the Lord's heard your prayer. He's going to give you some more time. And uh, Hezekiah is uh, praising God again there. Something goes on during this time period, though, because the chronicler tells us in verse 25 right here, that uh, Hezekiah's heart was proud. We're not, it's not recorded for us what exactly happened, but there's some, there's some sin in there that, uh, that messed Hezekiah up a little bit. Um, but then in verse 26, Hezekiah deals with it. He humbles himself um, for, from the pride in his heart. And he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God averted the, the wrath that was, that was coming for him because of that. And so in verse 27, he has very great riches, and he has honor, and he's made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of vessels, storehouses, also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfold. He likewise provided him cities for himself, and flocks, and herds, and abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. So when he's sick, some people hear from really far away, Babylon, that he has recovered. And they come in an order to see what God has done for Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah leads them around his city and he shows them all the things, all the things that we just talked about, all the animals, all the storehouses, all this incredible wealth that God has granted to him. He leads them and shows them all these things. And I suppose they are astounded. I suppose that's the point. Hezekiah may have been a little puffed up. This may be the, the pride uh, that, uh, that the chronicler, 
chronicler alludes to here in verse 25, uh, where his heart was puffed up, where he, had, he was dealing with some pride. And so it looks like maybe he was accounting for all these things and saying, look what I've done, instead of look what God has done for me. And so um, because of that, he's going to uh, be punished. Um, but the, eventually, it's, it's not going to happen during his lifetime. Babylon is going to come in, and they're going to take away uh, all the things that he's so proud of. But it's not going to happen during uh, Hezekiah's lifetime. When Isaiah tells Hezekiah that that's going to happen, do you know Hezekiah's heart? Do you know what he says? He says something. As Isaiah condemns his actions and tells them that there's going to be judgment because of this. Do you remember what Hezekiah says? The word from the Lord is good. Huh. That's not how most of us would have reacted, I think. <laughs> so much faith in this man that he looks at his own life and says, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've made a mistake, I've rebelled against God, I took for myself what was rightfully his, and now he's judged, and right, right, rightfully so. The word from the Lord is good. So verse 32 ends his life. Listen to it. Second Chronicles 30, 32, verse 32. He says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. How long has it been? since we've heard of a king of Judah buried in the tombs of David, especially in the upper part. You haven't heard of it because it hasn't happened. It's not since David. This guy, Hezekiah, his king is buried next to David <coughs> because he ruled in a way that would have made David proud. That certainly made God proud. And it uh, made the inhabitants of Judah proud. Listen to the rest of the sentence in verse 33. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did honor him at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. We'll talk about Manasseh in a couple of weeks. Manasseh is another one that takes more after his grandfather than his father. Manasseh is not going to be a good king, but he had a good father. And so what can we learn from, from Hezekiah's life? What's God trying to get across to us here? Well, I think what he's saying is bad things can happen even to good people. Bad things can happen even to good people. If you remember what Job uh, Job's story, uh, there early on in, in, uh, in his story, uh, as Satan is in God's throne room and he is uh, talking with God and the other angels that are present there, Satan has this question for God. It's in Job verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. He says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. A lot of times in our culture, in our society, we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not the question Job asks. That's not the question Job answers either, by the by. The question Job asks and the one that, that, that this book answers is, can bad things happen to good people? And the question is yes. Are the answers yes? <coughs> and you see that again in Hezekiah's life. This guy has done incredible things, has led a righteous and good 
life. He has forced revival upon his people and they have accepted it. Finally, they have accepted it. Several kings before him have attempted to and they've met with failure because the people's hearts weren't tuned to repentance yet. Something happens when God destroys the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah gets it and their hearts turn to him, at least some of them, and they are ready to wholeheartedly follow him once again like they haven't in the last 250 years or so. But then the Assyrians come in and then uh, Hezekiah gets deathly ill. Bad things happen to good people. The point is that relationship with God, relationship with Yahweh is integral. It's the point. It's not the blessings that we get out of that relationship, although those come right along with the relationship, don't they? He blesses and he blesses and he pours down blessing. John 10.10 says that he gives us abundant life, overflowing life. It's true. But that's not why we follow. Right? That's not why we follow. We follow because he's worthy of being followed. Because he's the leader. Because he's sovereign. He's in charge. Even if he didn't step in and save us from pain, he's still worthy of following. And so we fall back on that relationship during those hard times. I think the point, maybe, maybe one of the points we're supposed to get from Hezekiah's life is you put in the hard work right now before the disaster happens, before the hard times come. Put in the work right now so that when they do come, you can fall back on that maturity, that spiritual maturity, and soak in the relationship with God. It doesn't make the hard times any easier. I wish it did. It doesn't make the hard times any easier. But you know who's in charge. And you know who to run to. And you know who can soak up the pain. And he's worthy of worship. And he's worthy of following. Despite the pain that we have to endure. The goal was never to be free from pain. That's not the goal of, of Christianity. It's not, not our goal as His people to be free from pain. Pain comes. In this life, it is a necessity. It's here. We can't get away from it. The goal was never to be free from pain. The goal was to be close to Him. And sometimes that pain drives us close to Him. If we prepared ourselves for it. If like Hezekiah... We have tried to force revival into our hearts. If we've tried to be close to Him, if we've longed for Him during the easy years, that may not seem so easy until the hard years come. But if we've longed for Him during that time, that when the hard point, the hard seasons come, we can fall back on that relationship and it makes the hard years, the hard seasons so much more easy to bear because we're close to him. Not because we're free from pain, but because we're, we're close to him. And so that's, I think that's the lesson we learned from Hezekiah, that freedom from pain is not the goal. What a world it would be if it was, right? That's kind of a world we long for, isn't it? 
Lord, where we don't hurt anymore, where we're not beset by pains and fears and all the things that affect us here. Thankfully, He's prepared a place for us like that. A place where there's not any more death, where there's not any more sickness, where there's no more pain. And we're waiting for that place. That place, in fact, is where we have our citizenship. We were not citizens here. We're just pilgrims, travelers. We're just passing through. Here for a short time. But that's where we're headed. To this place where there's no more of those things. The only way we can get there is to be close to Him. And sometimes pain brings us close. He uses pain to do that sometimes. If we've prepared ourselves, that's how He does it. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Beautiful and, and painful and hurtful all at the same time. So the goal is to get close to Him. So how do you get close to Him? He doesn't just want you close. He wants you to be inside of Him. He wants you to be a part of His family. And so you do that through the power of baptism. He has your sins washed away and you become brand new, brand new creation. You're no longer you, you're Him. You died, you've picked up Him. And now you go. You go and you live your life so that His light can shine through you. And you stay close to Him. You put in the hard work to be close to Him all the days of your life. And so that when bad things do happen, you know who to run back to. you got a fortress. That's how David would say it, isn't he? He says, you're my, you remember this verse, strong tower. You're who I run to when I can't breathe, when I can't talk, when I can't think. I run right back to you because you're good. And I know that you're the healer of my wounds even when it hurts. And so that's the God we serve. It's a beautiful picture uh, that you find here in Hezekiah of God. If you read it in between the lines, you begin to capture this picture of God. That's just incredible, isn't it? Today he calls you. If you haven't been baptized, let's make that right today. To become inside of Christ. To have a brand new family, but to become also a brand new creation. One who's directed every moment of your life toward his goals. Maybe you already made that decision and you just need the prayers of this congregation to move forward in your walk with God to be close to him. We want to help you in any way we can. Won't you come tonight as we stand and sing? Will you come, will you come with your full of broken heart burning and sin oppressed lay it down at the feet of your Savior and
Chris for two good lessons a day. Just a couple reminders. Uh, just a reminder that the service projects have been canceled for today. We'll pick back up with those in February. Stepping Stone Supper this Wednesday from 5.30 to 6.30. Uh, soup and sandwiches. Also just a final reminder on the uh, surveys. If you can uh, fill those out and uh, put those in the mailboxes, we'd appreciate it. Also the um, college students' Valentine's cards. There's a uh, Actually, a plastic tub in the uh, foyer, you can drop those in. And if you could have those here by February the 9th, they'll be mailed out uh, February the 10th. Also, uh, just a reminder, Jenny Garlic's uh, funeral will be at 2.30 this afternoon at the uh, Crown City Cemetery. And uh, Alma Edwards, this is uh, Karina Calicoat's sister-in-law, passed away, so keep that family in your prayers. And continue to pray for Kristen and, and her family, as well as Marvin Jordan as he recovers from back surgery, and Nash Walker. That's all the announcements we have. Just a reminder to pick up a bulletin uh, with all the names of, of those listed, um, and also our shut-ins as well. Let's keep them in our prayers as well. If you haven't had the opportunity to uh, take the Lord's Supper, uh, you could do so during the singing of our last uh, song in the uh, conference room. Would you? Okay, so, okay. So, ladies' class uh, will be starting back up, and that'll be Thursday morning at what? At ten o'clock. So, I'll be starting back in February. Uh, any other announcements that need to be made? Okay, we'll have one more song and uh, closing prayer. Close the day with the mansion robe and crown. I'm gonna trade my earthly home for a better one, bright and fair. Christ left to prepare a mansion for his children in the air. I'll join him in that land where tears no sorrow can be found. And I'll receive my mansion, robe and crown.
Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the opportunity we've had here this morning and this afternoon to hear your word and sing songs of praise to you. Father, we ask that you be with each of us as we go out into the world, that you watch over and protect us, that you protect us when we travel. And it's in all these things we ask Jesus' name. Amen.